Hey, it's Alex here. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you that this episode of the New Stack Makers is part of our second season of the Tech Founder Odyssey. We heard from a lot of founders in the first series, and we're going to hear from more about what it takes for a technical founder to launch a startup. What were the challenges they faced? What were the pitfalls? What were their personal stories along the way? This is what you'll get from the Tech Founder Odyssey series. I'll be hosting the first episode And then I'll be handing it off to Heather Jocelyn and Colleen Call for the rest of season two. They are a dynamic duo. They do awesome work. I think you'll love to hear their interviews. We've got some great guests lined up, so please stay tuned. You're listening to The New Stack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at-scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to thenewstack.io. All right, now on with the show. Hey, everyone. Today, we're talking with Edith Harbaugh, co-founder and CEO of LaunchDarkly, which focuses on feature management. Edith and co-founder John Cardamal started the company in 2014. We'll be asking Edith about the process of starting Launch Darkly and how her journey has unfolded. I have a particular interest in the story I read about her endurance running and being ahead of the race, so to speak. So I'm curious on the comparison there. So welcome, Edith. Yeah, it's great to be here. I I love the new stack. I feel like the readership really is our target market of developers, people who want to make software better. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Well, I was captivated a while back by this concept of feature flags. And I started thinking a lot about feature flags when I was reading about it. It's like, there must be patterns for establishing feature flags. There must be like, there must be now templates for feature flags. Actually, I think I listened to a podcast where there actually are. And there's all these different aspects to feature flags. You know, just for our audience, so just we get a, a grounding, Can you tell us about what are feature flags and how it serves as a foundation for LaunchDarkly? Yeah, happy to. So LaunchDarkly is the number one feature management company. Our mission is to help all teams that build software to launch, measure, control software. And when we founded in 2014, it was from this basic idea that software was really hard. You know, I've been an engineer and a product manager. Uh, releasing software is hard. You wonder whether you're building the right thing. Once you get it out to the market, it often is not quite right. And then you just run this huge risk of how do you fix things on the fly? So feature flagging was a technique that a lot of the smartest companies like Facebook, TripIt, where I was at, and Atlassian, where my co-founder were at, were using. But there wasn't really an off-the-shelf product that helped software teams do it. So the kernel of LaunchDarkly when we started in 2014 was to make this technique of feature flagging into a movement called feature management to allow everybody to build better software faster in a safer way. You know, I read an article that Tom Krasitz wrote, I believe, in Protocol about a problem I've heard a lot over the years. And it would be for a lot of this feedback I'd hear from marketing would go something like this. 
I don't know when we're going to release it. It's up to the dev team. Like, and like every time we want to release it, they say that it's not done. But we said, like, we wanted to know when it was going to be done. And they said, well, if you really need to know, we can say April. But now it's not done. But then the other day, they just released it. <laughs> so I think the what LaunchSharkly really allows companies to do, and that is such a common issue, is to break down features into very however granular uh, organization wants it and allow a developer to push it out onto production, uh, which sounds extremely scary, but a developer pushes it out off. So then you allow other people in the organization, whether they be marketing, product manager, to turn it on for different people at different times. So for example, if, uh, if we were running a release and we wanted somebody from the new stack to see it first, we could, the marketing person could turn it on just for you. So they're in full control. Yeah, that's like a feature that almost seems to come from a bit of like uh, what I recall in the earlier days in consumer technologies, like where you could like hide a blog post, right? Uh, so like only you could send it to someone, but they could only click that link when the link was published. Yeah, so we, we do that at scale and we allow non-developers to control that. So you've really wanted to be a company that allows you to be very valuable for the developer, but the non-developer seems to be that larger opportunity. How'd you discover that? So I, I started off in engineering. I did a lot of releases and then I was a product manager. And I think there's sometimes this unnecessary, unhealthy tension with what you just described of the developer wants to build, the marketing person wants to expose. And what we allow is that we empower both parties to do that. So the developer could say, hey, I've built this marketing person. You know, it's time for the 4 a.m. West Coast launch for the 7 a.m. East Coast press. And you can control that, which actually really makes both parties a lot happier. Yeah, it does. And so... Can you give us the size of the company these days? Like, how big is the company? So we've had a lot of success. Again, when we started in 2014, this was a pretty novel way to build software. What we've really done is allow companies all over the world to do it. So we have 4,000 plus customers. Everything from Atlassian, which is an Australian company, to IBM, which is global, to, to Intuit, who've all kind of discovered this power. How does it integrate how does it fit with kind of approaches to continuous delivery for example and question of the day is about security and so how does feature management help with security in a continuous delivery context yeah that's a great question so again when we started about 10 years ago people were just getting up to speed about this idea of continuous delivery the old way of building software was very waterfall oriented you know, where you did a year release with maybe like six months of development, six months of QA. And the issue with this style of release was that you often miss the market. Like if you're guessing what's going to happen a year from now, you're often very late. So continuous delivery was this idea uh, really popularized by Jeff Humble and Dave Farley that you could break stuff into smaller and smaller features and release very quickly, iteratively. The, the issue that a lot of orgs had with continuous delivery was this was extremely scary. Like the example that you gave at the top of the hour about a developer pushing out code whenever they want, it's not actually how organizations run. You know, they're like, I need to enable my salespeople. 
I might have users who need training. I need to line up my release notes. So how we fit into that, that, that world was we said that developers could push code whenever they want and we'll be this wrapper that allows the rest of the organization to control when it goes out. And then for your question about security, because that's that layer of authorization, you always know exactly who it is going to. So for example, if you're a multinational company and you, for example, want stuff to go out to New Zealand, but not to Australia, you can use LaunchDarkly as that layer to protect that. Ah, so they act as a layer of authorization. Yes. So a lot of our customers actually use us for that of, you know, it's very common to say, you know, people in New York get this and not New Jersey or vice versa, particularly if you're in some sort of regulated industry. I hung around heavy bit circa 2014. And there was a bit of buzz in the office about this company launched darkly. I just thought I'd, I'd share that with you. There was a uh, kind of a kind of a buzz going on about this. Like, gotta meet, you gotta meet Edith. You gotta meet Edith. I I loved being part of Heavybit. So Heavybit was uh, an incubator in downtown SF, and a lot of the companies were doing really innovative stuff. Yeah. Like like uh, and it was just, it was a fun place to be because we could all exchange ideas. Yeah. And I realized in hindsight how how fortunate we were to be in that. Yeah, it was in it was there it was a neat community there that that was fostered. I think it was the name of the space, it was the theme of the space itself, it was the people that it attracted. It was the right time. It was like the early days of of like, I don't want to say it's the early day of De- DevOps, because I remember hearing the term DevOps circa 2007 and I think it was Adrian Bridgewater and he said it was at the actually OSCON event in Portland. And I just said, I said, what, what is DevOps? He says, it's a culture, man. <laughs> you know, I, he didn't say man, but he said, it's a culture, you know? And, and that was like, to me, I was like, gosh, I'm trying to grok this, but it is a culture. So you were, where were you in like that time? Where were you like around 2006 to 2007? I got some patents from a long defunct company called Epicentric around, uh, around deployment around moving stuff between developer box to staging to production. And Epicentric got acquired by another company called Vignette, which was a very early uh, web content management company. So from that, I was meeting 2006, 2007, I was meeting with customers worldwide about all their content management problems. Traveling around the world, talking to customers about content management. I did. You know, it was, it was, it was really fun. I got to hear all their problems about you know, web 1.0. And at that time it was the transition to web 2.0. So you were like trying to talk about, were you trying to talk them out of XML? I was more trying to talk them into Ajax. Uh-huh. Okay. And I was more, uh, it was funny. So I'd say web 1.0 was just getting stuff online at all. So this idea of like, let's take a newspaper and put it online. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, the talks I had back then were around this idea that if you had users participate, that it could be a two-way street. Like, so Web 1.0 is just like a newspaper would put something yeah. up online. Web 2.0 was this idea that like, hey, if you were the Sun, which was a paper in the UK, uh, you could host blogs and comments from your readers. Ah. Which now, which now everybody's like, well, yeah. But but at the time, it was like something that it, it was seen as very novel that it's like, hey, it's not just our authors that people can actually comment on articles. Yeah, I mean, I remember that very well. I... I got hired to write a report on how newspapers were digitizing. This was in the 90s, actually. But it was like, I followed kind of how they were doing it. And like some of them were like like sending CDs out, right? Like, 
you can so you can open the CD and you can flip the you know the digital pages you know and it just doesn't it just didn't relate and it's funny if you kind of look at that concept because clearly you were kind of thinking you're showing like hey you know that's not quite the right way to think about about uh, your newspaper you know you should be thinking about it in terms of like just that interaction you know it's interesting because there's a lot of analogies today like. I was having a conversation with an old friend of mine over the weekend. I'm like, you know, it's kind of like these, you know, the plant-based food world is kind of having kind of a little bit of a downturn. And I think it's partly because they're trying to sell them with burgers, right? It's like, but you know, you're trying to sell something that you're never going to be able to compete with. You know, you're never going to be able to compete with a hamburger, you know, and it's time for something entirely new. We don't really know what that it's something entirely new is. So, yeah. I, I do think there has been a continued wave from... It just being a one-way street of people just pushing out content to the best content being a lot more participatory. Yeah. But at the same time, like people still seeking out curated professional content. So you went to Harvey Mudd. I did. And you studied computer science and and uh, economics? I actually got an engineering degree. Engineering degree. Engineering degree. And uh, so I went to Harvey Mudd which is at the time it had a graduating class of 130 people. Wow. Is that how, is it just a tiny college? I mean, it's not very big today, is it? It's a tiny college and it specializes in STEM. So you could get engineering, math, physics, biology, chemistry, or computer science. But the other benefit it had, it was, it was part of the Claremont Colleges. So it was next to Pomona, Claremont McKenna, Pittsburgh Scripps, and Claremont grad. And so I realized in hindsight what a huge geek I was because I was getting an engineering degree at Harvey Mudd and I realized that I could also get an econ degree at the same time for the same amount of money if I took basically a, a huge amount of classes every semester. You were totally geeking out. You were like in the library reading your economics books and like doing your programming. It was more classical engineering degree. So I was in the lab like doing centrifugal force studies. Ah, gosh, okay. You're in the lab. Nice, But I realized in hindsight that everybody else's college experience was different than mine if they went to different schools (laughs) or like, uh, mine was, how do I figure out how to cram as many classes into a semester? Ah, really? Okay. And I I, like, and going down to Pomona college and asking professors to let me into their classes. And so you would approach them. Would you like just knock on their office door and say, hi, I'm Edith and I want to be in your class. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, uh, I actually, it's funny because I went to Claremont McKenna first because it's closer geographically. And I knocked on the doors. They said, you know, our classes are just for our students. We can't let you in, you know, because you have to, to get an econ degree, you have to take a certain level of, uh, you know, yeah, prerequisites. And they're like, no, our, our our fundamental courses are just for our students. And then I rode my bike a little bit further down to Pomona and I knocked on the door and I said, hey, I'm really interested in econ. You know, could I take the fundamental courses here? And they said, yeah. I was like, great. Like it was, um, <laughs> again, uh, I don't know how geeky mud was, but I was a huge geek. That's great. I've heard people who got in Harvey Mudd and they loved it. And they're, we still, were, they're the most unique people too. We had a real, in hindsight, a hotspot, like Joe Beta, uh, who went on to do Kubernetes. Yeah, he went there. He was a couple years ahead of me. The people who founded DreamHost. Oh, wow. I remember when they got their computers from Fry Software. Oh, gosh. Because they, they, they started out of their dorm room. And Tom Preston Warner, uh, the founder of GitHub, I didn't know him, but he was also there. 
So a lot of, uh, in hindsight, really innovative companies came out of mud. What led you there? Like, tell me about, you know, Edith in high school. Oh, I was a huge geek. Uh, I graduated when I was 16. I wanted to go to the best (laughs) engineering school. You know, it was was as simple as that. So Harvey Mudd would be considered the best. You know, it, it had this very narrow focus in STEM, but I thought it gave a very good education. How did it set you up for the endurance of having a startup? And I know you did endurance racing at one time, and I saw this interview you did at the Traction Conference with uh, Jonathan Helliger of Vertex Partners. And I really loved it. And I know you're more into bicycling these days, but you talked about endurance and you like took courses at Harvey Mudd, you know, as many as you could take. You rode your bicycle to one college when they said no, you went to the next one to uh, see if they take you. So, you know, this is endurance just something you love? I think it's just a mindset of, you know, if I want something, I'll think about how I can get it. You know, with the with the story about colleges, you know, I was like, I'm just going to knock on one more door. You know, with the company in the early days, it was extremely difficult. We were a new concept. Like, I felt like the most innovative companies like Facebook, LinkedIn back then were already feature flagging. But it was something very new uh, to a lot of other people doing software. So I always had this saying back then of never close lost, always close later, uh, which I took if you've ever used uh, Salesforce, which is a, a customer relationship management system. If you have an opportunity in there, you have to close it if it's cold at a certain point. So you usually close it as close lost. I always said to the, to the team, it's, it's, it's just always going to be an opportunity later. Like you might close, you might close it right now because there's just no traction with that customer. They're not going anywhere. But I bet if you talk to them in a year or two, they'll be ready. And I think that maps back to just endurance of you know it's 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 not a sprint. It's just a lot of it's just a lot of hard work. Right. It's a lot of hard work. I'm a baseball fan, and Babe Ruth came up in my feed, and he said basically the same thing. He basically said that you know, no one's going to beat you if you never give up. <laughs> you know? And I think there's something to say about that, right? So uh, on my bike ride across country, which was super fun. Uh, so I was by myself. It was self-supported. And there were a lot of tough days, you know, because you're just biking across Montana, which seems to last forever. And then you get to North Dakota. <laughs> it's like a joke. <laughs> and I love North Dakota. I mean, it would be there would be a thunderstorm. It would be a really tough day when maybe the road wasn't very well paved. But there was always something fun in that day. Yeah. And I think startups are a lot like that. Yeah. There's always something fun in the day. Yeah. So does that make it easier to hire people? Which part? Like knowing there's always something fun in the day. I mean, are you looking for that kind of spirit in people who you hire? Uh, you know, I'm pretty proud. We just celebrated uh, some six-year anniversaries of the company. Uh-huh. So we got our A round, or, or Series A in 2016. And we hired a batch of people then. And a lot of them are still with the company. So back then, we went from eight people to 16, which at the time seemed like a huge double. And right then, we were about at 1 million. And now we're at 100 million. And I was... Extremely happy that the people that joined then, uh, you know, I could show a picture at our all company and they, they're still here. That's great. Their roles have changed. They've matured a lot. They've grown up with the company, but they're, they're still on that journey. So when you're looking for people, you know, to join not just your engineering management team, but now you have marketing teams and you have sales teams and you have operations teams. 
Have you found that it's more difficult to hire? Is it easier to hire? What is the sense of the market right now for you kind of in context with that? It's definitely different. I mean, to, to take to take you back to the heavy bit days when we were, you know, four people in a co-working environment, it was definitely a lot of persuasion of this is going to be a game-changing company. And also you're going to have fun along the way. Now we have a lot more proof points. You know, we we did an article with Forbes where we announced we're over 100 million of uh, annual recurring revenue. We have 4,000 plus customers. Uh, we talked about patterns. So it is easier in some ways to recruit folks because we can point to patterns of success. You know, we could we could say, here's how we've already set ourselves up for success and here's how we're gonna continue to set ourselves up for success. Yeah, that 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 that's relevant. Where would you say you're now then in that journey? Like you're riding your bike across the country and you made it to North Dakota. Where are you now with Flaunt Sharkley? I mean, I, I tell the team all the time that we're in a better position than ever. We have had extreme success with our customers. And that's one of the things that makes me very happy that when I go see a customer who's been using us, you know, for four, five, six, seven years, they, they talk about that. They say how it's been a game changer for the way they develop. It's been a game changer for their developer productivity. It's been a game changer for their own happiness and their own customers. And we have 4,000 customers, but I think we should have 10x that. You know, when I look at the world of software, I think we're still very, very, very early. There's still a lot to do. So what do you think is being affected now by companies out there who are seeing Google lay off people, who are seeing Amazon lay off people? You know, companies very large are in the tech space are laying people off. How does that affect you? You know, of course, first, I feel a lot of sympathy and empathy for the people affected. Right. Um, that's hard. I've been in through the dot-com crash, the 2007 recession. And I'm very optimistic overall about just technology. Like, I think there's been multiple waves of technology. We talked about Web 1.0, Web 2.0. I'm not sure I love the term Web 3.0, but we're still in the middle of it. And I think there's still more to come there. I, I think innovation sometimes gets compressed or expanded, but it never stops. Like we, we did a survey of a thousand people in IT. And of those, you know, 79% expected their IT department to increase their feature management budget. And 98% said that feature flag saved their company money and delivered demonstrable ROI, which made me feel great. So I think innovation will continue to win, but there's going to be a lot of short-term disruption with some companies funding and defunding different initiatives. What do you think is, what, what initiatives are you starting to see that are getting defunded? or And vice versa, what ones are getting uh, kept? Well, I'll just use a very public example. You know, Southwest just very recently had a massive meltdown, which affected millions of Americans because they defunded IT. Like they said, hey, we need to defund IT. We're going to focus just on pilots and planes. And then they had a, a, a meltdown over the Christmas holidays because there was a weather issue, which is understandable. And then their software wasn't equipped to redirect all the planes and the pilots to the right place, which I viewed as a huge tragedy. It's like they had the hardware, they didn't have the software. So I viewed that as them being, trying, you know, them making what they thought was the right decision of defunding a, a project for crew scheduling that ultimately very much hurt them, hurt their business, hurt their customers. That's really interesting. I have a last question for you. Going back to your first days and your interest in engineering and you know, as a high schooler, I don't know if it was before that, but, you know, what was the first 
experience you have with uh, programming? Oh gosh, you know, I learned. <laughs> so I I was an extremely nerdy kid. I uh, I would finish all my worksheets when I was in second grade. I would get kicked out to the library because otherwise I was just sitting there. And I played a ton of Carmen San Diego. <laughs> I played yeah. a ton of Oregon Trail. And I got to the last level and I was like, okay, I can't can't do any more Oregon Trail. And I taught myself uh, basic then. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I didn't have an instructor. How did you, find, how'd you discover basic? Well, because I had this computer in the library and like, you know, they have all the icons. And I, and I like, I tell me, ask me where Carmen San Diego is and I'll tell you in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd, I'd gone through that i was like okay there's a, the only thing left here is basic and so i taught myself basic and then uh i went on and i uh i taught little kids how to program logo and i just i just found it fascinating that you could make something work then you went into enterprise development right out of school you went into the developer world you started a launch darkly in 2014 2022 is here where do you see where do you see yourself in five years? Continuing to build launch darkly? Do you want I mean, do you have greater is there any kind of other dream you have for yourself? Well, first it's it's 2023, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Edith. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Um, yeah. You know, I, I still what is it, the checks? I heard this on a on a on a NPR show, like the guy's like, yeah, I still write my checks. I'm like, you write checks, but he's 2022. But in any case, yeah. So like, is there anything else in your life that you really would love to try or love to do? You know, I think, I think launch Sharkly is just that it's very beginning. You know, I, as I said, I talked to our customers and how much it's changed our lives. And then I, I think about all the customers that we don't have yet that could be having a better software release. And I, I want to help them. That sounds like a, a nice uh, way to end the interview. Thank you so much, Edith. I've been joined today for our Tech Founder Odyssey interviews. Edith Harbaugh, thank you. You're an uh, inspiration to a lot of people for what you've, what you've done and building something quite unique. And all the best of luck with the continued building out of your business. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community, and we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube. Search for The New Stack, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us, and see you soon. Bye.